Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of the TSSI series. Today we have three of us on the call and hopefully soon we'll have one more. Lexi, would you like to introduce yourself? Say hi. Hey there, I'm Lexi. You might know me from Swampside Chats podcast. And this book is something I've read maybe a little too much a few years ago. And it's good to get reacquainted with it. Very good. Now, also, we have Rosa from Swampside Chats. Rosa, do you want to say something? Um, yeah, um, just reading through this book and with the rest of y'all sort of on and off. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Huh? Rosa, I'm, I'm very disappointed. I was expecting some, you know, really <laughs> breakthrough comments there. You've let the side down. Well, yeah, I'm getting outnumbered here by Swampside Chats, so I kind of yeah. want Derek to come on soon. I never thought I'd hear myself saying that. Oh, come but on. Let, let's start without him. He said he'd be on in a few minutes. Derek props up all kinds of podcasts on his own, so, you know, it's good to have him on. He truly does. The man is a hyperactive podcaster, if ever there was one. We'd all be lost without him. Yep. Now, we're finished chapter one, two, and three. I just wanted to say a one or two small things about last week's one before we start one of them i said that shake was an sssi guy but i don't think that is true he was uh, somebody who tried to fix the dual system interpretations as far as i can see in the book i got a bit mis mistaken exactly what system he tried to fix but it wasn't sssi i checked that again so he was try to reconcile the dual simultaneous system. So that's just a, a quick correction there. Also, Emmanuel, when we're talking about the 5P equals 4P plus R times 4P equation that blew all our minds, he was correct when he, start, when, he, when he talked about the markup in the equation about how it's an assumption and that it shouldn't necessarily be non-positive. And I said that he was wrong. Well, I said he was wrong. And then when Puya said it, Again, I said Puya was right, so it shows you how much how much clarity <laughs> I had last week. I was extremely tired, but I've just had a power nap, literally one hour's power nap before uh, we started. So hopefully I won't be making so many basic errors this week. Right. Will we start with chapter four? Does, who wants to take this introductory chapter, 4.1? Lexi, let's go to you first, seeing that you All didn't right. get first last week. Do you want to have a stab? Yeah, let's do it. So he starts out by saying it's pretty weird to do this in a book on Marxist political economy. However, Marxists are terrible at doing interpretation. They violate the standard norms of interpretation. And he says they're acceptable within economics more generally. He blames the whole myth of internal inconsistency on this. And he feels like if Marxists and Strafians adopted the hermeneutic principles, the interpretive principles that he's going to lay out, that this all would have been settled in Marx's favor a long time ago. He's setting up, let's get, try to get this person's name right, Scrapanti. Yeah, he goes into this kind of slightly obscure kind of screed against this guy, Scrapanti. Does anybody think it's worth actually reading through this? Because you know, he's just quoting like weird sections and things he said, like in section two here, he says, you know, equations one, three, four and six weren't originals. And 
all of that, that it's very hard to actually make sense of it when you're not going to read the paper. Is it worth going into it? <laughs> I just want to make a couple comments before we even do that. The first thing is that this chapter is called Making Marx Make Sense, which is a flip on an analytical Marxist book, Making Sense of Marx. The second would be that he stresses that the point of the book is about Marx's argument and Marx's internal inconsistency and not whether Marx's argument is true. That's one of the biggest strengths of this book. And I, I think he succeeds in, in making this case in part because of, of this chapter that you would almost never see. I think Richard Wolff talks about interpretive method and is kind of, I think, like a post-Althusserian or something. I, yeah, I so rarely see this discussed. And I think this chapter basically seals that it's, it's, a re it's really hard to make a, a case against Marx's argument being this because of the interpretive principles he's laying out. Okay, Rosa, do you have anything to say on this initial chapter? Yeah, he basically like he fundamentally like draws it back to like sort of an interpretive problem, like all these sort of like false interpretations are like based on like Marx is not really understanding like the specific her hermeneutics that he's trying to use. A little bit later, he talks about like a scientific version of hermeneutics a little bit later on but like basically it's a fundamental problem of not really reading Marx right that has led to this sort of like problem of like claims of internal inconsistency within Marx's theory of labor value. It seems to me like it you know it's a kind of a, a cottage industry. I remember listening to Doug Lane's podcast and he had some guy on who I can't remember his name now talking about how you know, value theory really doesn't apply now, now that we've got like the internet or something. And you're kind of going, oh my God, <laughs> this, you know, this is the, the level of kind of interpretations and understandings of it go from, you know, good kind of math mathematical kind of slight misinterpretations to the full gamut of just plain, like a lack of understanding. You know, I find this chapter fine, but I, I, I personally, I find this chapter I, I imagine that you guys will probably be more interested or Derek will be more interested in this chapter than me. That Definitely. It's, it's something that I just kind of find, you know, I, I have any arguments really with any of the logic, I will parse it. So he gives an example here. Are we okay to go into 4.2 about how yeah. not to interpret? Basically, this is a kind of a, a screed against this guy, Scrapanti, who came up with a proof that Marx's value theoretic account of exploitation is logically inconsistent. And the basic point that Andrew is making here is that Scrapanti uses his own definitions of Marx's definitions and comes up with conclusions on that. And that you have to define what somebody actually says initially correctly and deduce from that. And if you deduce it from that, that's fair enough. But you don't just choose your own definitions. You have to kind of show that your definitions are actually what Marx is, would have said think he's basically much just giving an example of the type of thing that gets done whereby people have their own ideas of what Marx said he said and then deduce away from that but Andrew's trying to make the point that you have to be extremely careful with your initial starting point because everything else falls if you don't get those initial ones correct. What's significant about this is that apparently the Scrapanti paper references the TSSI in the appendix but then claims that, you know, Marx is inconsistent based on Scrapanti's formalization, 
without acknowledging the TSSI or the SSSI, which apparently would have also solved the logical inconsistency. And I think this might even be where the focus on logical inconsistency comes from, because that's a quote that's quoted from Israfian Marxist Scripanti. He also makes a point about journals. I think that's the thing that kind of Andrew has also had some throwdowns with different journals on what they print and what they uh, comments they allow people to make about the TSSI and things like this. Let me just read this passage here. Despite all of this, at least one editor of a respected heterodox journal of economics, and presumably some referees as well, deems Scrapanti's inverted commas, proof worthy of publication. This case is far from unique. As we shall see throughout this book, those who have proved, inverted commas, that Marx was in- internally inconsistent and those who published their work seem rarely, if ever, to have considered the possibility that Marx's arguments may admit of a different interpretation. And when their interpretations are unable to make Marx's text make sense, this is invariably taken to be proof of his inconsistency rather than evidence of their own misinterpretation. Yeah, that that kind of idea is we see is kind of repeated throughout the chapter, I think. Anybody have any problems with what he is saying so far? No problems. Just this is a good example of a very neutrally written paragraph that clearly has a deep amount of resentment, probably righteous, at the standards of academic economics. And if anyone spent a little time in an economics department, I'm assuming especially an economics department that has some of the culture of leftist academia, it sounds pretty rough. I don't even know how many heterodox economic journals there out there, so it must be like such a small and like insular sort of thing to the point where it's like cliqueish. I think most reasonably sized colleges will have one heterodox economist on the on the books. Like as in they may not be teaching heterodox stuff. There are heterodox economists you know, in say in Ireland or something, you know, there's not that many universities. They do right. exist. So I think there's probably a few journals. But Well, the most important heterodox journal is actually the Cambridge Journal of Economics, which is apparently perfectly fine with publishing a bunch of heterodox cranks, including Kleiman, one of Kleiman's articles about Whiggish history and economics got published in the Cambridge Journal of Economics. Yeah, well, I think they have a history in Cambridge, you know, they have a history of having Marxist and, you know, Schraffians and all these dudes. They have a, like a, an institutional history of it, you know, a culture of it. Okay, well, will we shift on to section 4.3. I think uh, there's a reason that this is maybe a little confounding. Some, sometimes it feels like these things maybe shouldn't need to be said. Like, for instance, he's going into the difference between a meaning and an interpretation. And some of the scholarship that he's reflecting on is talking about like, um, you know, maybe, you know, could be like your own personal meaning or it could be this kind of meaning. And I just want everyone to notice that for most of these citations, we're dealing with, okay, we got one in the sixties. Okay. Rorty 1991. And we got Hogan 1996. We got, okay. 2001. That's pretty close. There is a specific thing going on in the nineties. I want to read that line there. I've got highlighted there for you. Yeah. Hogan lists nine different possible meanings of a text's quote, meaning everything from the quote, conscious truth, conditional meaning of the author quote to 
the publisher's political aim. So when I was maybe being a bit uncharitable to value form theory and was saying dismissive things about Derrida, Kleiman is signaling here that it is not required that you take this kind of bitter, fashionable nonsense, analytical point of view towards acknowledging that people have different reasons for reading a text. I think this is a strength of his book that he refrains from weighing on this because I, I, I don't know what he would say, but the thing that I think is materially important is that because he's had such a mindfuck of a time in leftist academia trying to trying to basically say that, well, this is what Marx said. Why can't you read this? He's developed a, an appreciation for, you know, radical epistemology. <laughs> and that's where a lot of the the feels for, for post-structuralism came from was, well, you clowns are doing this wrong anyway. Not that. And I think y- you could feel this way even if you don't adopt the interpretive norms of post-structuralism. You can kind of understand why lefties would be inclined to accept some of the, the more like radical arguments uh, that end up in the humanities regarding interpretation. People get nihilistic about what things mean. But for Kleiman, it's not really important to condemn people for not accepting the truth in all interpretive cases. The point is, why are you interpreting the text? Yeah, like he is quite, I always find he's quite open on this. He doesn't seem to care why, you know, he thinks there's a validity to interpreting different ways. He's not being a, a control freak and saying, oh, you can only read it this way. You can't read it as a as a literary text or anything like this, you know. But when you actually try and say what Marx meant, you have to try and do a proper, I think, hermeneutic, exegetical hermeneutic reading. Yeah, it was it was more generally the, you know, quote, no bullshit school, quote that was apparently reading Marx in this kind of bullshitty way. Whereas, I guess, people that are into this radical epistemology, again, like um, Richard Wolff and Stephen Resnick, have a whole, in my opinion, kind of weird like epistemology and like philosophy of science section to their work that's sort of post-Althusserian, sort of post-structuralist, really coming from strange place they assign richard uh, stephen resnick has a marxian economics course in which you read some richard rorty you know what i mean like that's kind of weird it's one of those interesting things again that you have inverted where the no bullshit people are pushing a very a very strained claim of interpretation on marx and the people that are more permissive about interpreting things seem to have a more consistent reading what the fuck so when you say post-Althusserian, what do you mean for All right, let's break like this me. down. Probably, regrettably, one of the most influential theories, one of the most influential theorists and philosophers of the 20th century is a man named Louis Althusser. He was a French Communist Party dude. He made his career by making like big sweeping assumptions about Marx or society and then breaking from them. And towards the end of his life, he kind of his conception of Marxist science, which was so important to him, sort of versus all the ideology collapses. And you, he, he sort of ends up in a scary place where he realizes he can't really tell the ideology from the science anymore. And that is a very influential thought world for critical theory and for Marxists more generally. So the, the post-structuralists 
are starting with the assumptions that Althusser has at the end of his career. Althusser being ahead of something called structural Marxism, which is why it's called post-structuralism after this guy. Does that make sense? So they're trying to say that, you know, say Marx's ideas of, say, exploitation or whatever that are in the theory, they can only be looked at ideologically and not scientifically. Basically, for a guy like Althusser, I sometimes call it an Illuminati theory of ideology. It's everywhere. There's a quote he says that pointing out ideology is like pointing out water to a fish. And of course, there's some pull to these things. But I think if you interpret them extremely literally, as people are wont to do when you write sentences, you're setting yourself up maybe for a paranoid breaker of some kind. Okay. So he's trying to talk about how you can say which is the best interpretation of Marx's value theory. So let me just read this paragraph. Two people who disagree vociferously about which is the best interpretation of Marx's value theory might agree on the answer to such questions as which interpretation of Marx's texts best exploits his value theory in furtherance of the physicalist research program? And which interpretation best establishes what Marx would, under ideal conditions, reply to questions about the terms of his analytical arguments, which are phrased in terms which he could understand right off the bat. So he's just showing two different people's ideas of what's the best way to interpret Marx. You know, it's quite dependent on what somebody is uh, trying to, to get at. Yeah. But it says, but he's saying this book deals exclusively with the last question. Okay. Not to say that there aren't other ways to do it, but this is what it's about. The reason why it does so is simple. The claim that Marx's arguments are internally consistent is a, is a claim that it is impossible to deduce his conclusions from his premises when the premises and conclusions are construed as he, as he intended them to be construed. It is therefore simply untenable to declare that Marx is internally inconsistent while simultaneously declaring that what he really meant is not the issue. Why do we need to have yeah. a chapter that says... Hey, you should read um, the author and assume that if there's one way of reading it that makes sense, or maybe even a few that makes that you know are coherent, you're going to prioritize those over over others when testing the logical coherence of the thinker. That's that shouldn't have to be said. It's it's okay that people want to do a value form reading if they want, but so, so, sometimes some of the things about value form that bother me is that they do this correction and replacement thing so that when they're talking about Marx, they're talking about their reading of Marx. And I guess academics just sort of do this. It's good for them. It is a career class interest, you might say, on a sort of, you know, finer level than a regular class interest. Yeah, essentially, like, you could basically, like, summarize this chapter in, like, under 30 minutes well like for a podcast you could probably just do this entire chapter under 30 minutes like it's just like what he's trying to say is that you should you shouldn't try to read into the text like it's okay to do that in certain cases but like when we're specifically talking about an argument relating to what marx said if marx has internal inconsistencies within the theory it's obvious that like it's just obvious that we should be doing it based on what is in the text specifically, not what we want to read into the text. And like he goes, he goes into it a bit further with like this sort of like scientific hermeneutics. 
let's have a look at this chapter 4.4. I think this is quite interesting. I find this interesting, knowing what an author meant. Let's just read this paragraph here. Okay, so it has been sometimes argued that we cannot know what an author meant, especially when, as in Marx's case, we cannot ask him or her. This argument presupposes that the author can know what he or she meant in a way that we cannot directly through introspection. Empirical evidence suggests, however, that this is not so. Hogan notes that many psychological studies have indicated that our introspective judgment is highly fallible. Even on ordinary matters, my analyses of myself are as much matters of uncertain theoretical inference as, my, as are my analyses of other people, rather than reports of knowledge obtained directly through introspection. The difference between the problems we face in knowing what someone else meant and what we ourselves meant is therefore at most a difference of degree, not a difference of kind. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if I'd agree with that, but it does. It's an interesting take. It would seem to be like a kind of a difference of kind, but maybe it's not. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just don't think the conclusion falls from the premises there. Yeah, um, I, I agree with all that stuff about like, yeah, you know, actually, when you're reading an argument, it is sort of like like gathering evidence. That's interesting. You know what I mean? That that's uh, it's it's you can look at it almost like any other scientific enterprise. The conclusion. Yeah. He doesn't say that exactly yet, does he? This is just, he's trying um, to say that, he's, he saying? Saying, he, he's saying here that basically the idea that oh, uh, introspection is more valid than just looking at, uh, trying to understand somebody through a text. Hmm. He's saying that they're of a similar class of problem. That introspection in and of itself is fairly flawed and that it's not entirely different I guess yeah, their, their words. It feels like a massive non sequitur because we're not talking about like sort of the introspection of like personnel talking about like person someone's personality traits. We're talking about what a text means, like what like the a, person it, meant. Meant, yeah. I, yeah, I think this a is text. a little shaky. Yeah, it's. Yeah. Uh, it's a complete non sequitur. It just doesn't make sense because there's like, he's trying to make the loose connection between the two because like introspection, what the person means, you know, it's all in their head specifically and only they can really know what they meant. And it's just like, Oh, okay. okay that's a, that's a pretty loose connection when we're talking about like what is written. And uh, it's, and it's or somebody's uh, ideas of their scientific theory. No, no, I know it's a little shaky, but I, I know. It just makes me think of Andrew's coming from a, you know, Hegelian Marxist background. And this seems like on the one hand, Hegel sometimes accepts that self-knowledge can be so, you know, obfuscating that sometimes the truth is more accessible to someone looking on from the outside than from the inside. On the other hand, <laughs> do we really agree that that means that the different knowledge people have is just a difference in degree, not a different in kind? I, I guess I could see what he's saying, that there's no experiential knowledge, I guess, that it's a sort of that the knowledge is a matter of like a universal, like theoretical inference, like or it's a pretty standard analytic view now that I'm breaking it down. Yeah, look, I, I think that, you know, I think that the logic he says here is that therefore at most a difference of degree. I don't know if you can say that. I don't know if the argument is that solid that you can deduce from it, but you could put forward that as 
a theory that they're not that different. I think it's I think it's it's vague what he means, and there's a strong claim and a weak claim. And the weak claim is just that like some of the analytical philosophers are right, and you can isolate like thoughts, and that's sort of where knowledge is. It's not in like experience. He doesn't really even have to make the argument because like what Marx is saying, we know what Marx said because it's written on a page. It's written right in front of us. It's not like, of course, you can't really elaborate on it, but like it's already written. So we know what Marx meant. He meant what he wrote. I, I know that sounds kind of weird and simplistic, but like it, it's in the text and he elaborates th further that we should be doing it based on what's in the text rather than like how we want to spin it, essentially which yeah. spinning it can be interesting, but like when we're specifically talking about the issue that he wants to talk about, it's not, it's not what we should be doing. Yeah, he, he makes this case for it being kind of scientific and empirical. Let's, let's just read this paragraph. The notion that we cannot know what an author meant is also often based on confusion between knowledge and certainty. We can never be certain that a particular interpretation is correct or incorrect. Yet, as many authors emphasize, all empirical investigation is like interpretation in this respect. Whether the empirical data are texts, thumbprints, economic statistics, or readings of the movements of subatomic particles, we can never say with certainty that a part particular explanatory hypothesis must be correct or incorrect. Okay, so he's making this case that, like, you know, just like we're trying to figure out, you know, whether atoms move a certain way under certain conditions. You know, we can look at that and interpret it. So we can also interpret, you know, people's statements to understand the theory. It's equally a valid use of empirical data. I think that's a really interesting yeah. idea of interpretation. I found that yeah. like the most interesting thing early in the entire chapter. Yeah, reading a text is a scientific investigation. All the stuff written in the text is potential empirical evidence for an argument that is what your interpretation is. It's an explanatory hypothesis. Yeah, that is pretty cool. I think part of what makes people resistant to that is what he says in the first sentence, that people assume that knowledge of what an author meant is certainty about what an author meant. And he thinks that just a standard scientific standard here is not certainty. It's a plausibility of interpretation. So I've just written something in my actual hard copy here, and I'm just trying to... Okay, this, this is the point here. So as 20th century philosophers of science have taught us, all theories can be made to fit the facts, but they cannot all do so plausibly, and thus their relative plausibility is the basis for discriminating amongst them. The same thing holds true in the case of interpretation. But th this is an, an easy one, or an interesting one, I mean, like when I was reading this, I kept on, I wrote down, this reminds me of algorithmic information theory, the mathematician Chaitan, who I've had on the podcast, done a lot of work in this about how you can interpret theories about how compressible they are. So the smaller the theory it is, and it can explain the most information that should be thought of as the best theory. You know, he's getting trying to get to the point here is that like, look, we can rank interpretations that science, uh, philosophers of science and mathematicians or whatever have come up with theories on how we should rank them. And, you know, if we see like the TSSI, for example, 
explains Marx and it's succinct and understandable and it does so better than the rest, you know, you could rank it first. That's the way I kind of think about this stuff. Yeah. He discusses um, two like academic cases that sort of demonstrate his point. One of which is just someone named Fish repeating that we are right to rule out at least some readings. I don't know if Fish is particularly relativist or something. But then he goes on to a fun science troll example where a Derrida-style deconstructionist argues that Plotnitsky's interpretation of an exchange on Einstein's physics or something like that. That's not a paper I would like to read. Yeah, right. Um, He basically says that it can be ascertained with a reasonable degree of certainty that Hippolyte suggests a possibility of some connections between Derrida's ideas and relativity. (laughs) So like that even crazy-ass postmoderns who are fucking nuts and having a field day with the interpretations of the text, even they don't say that all textual interpretation is just as good. There you have it. Let's get on. Let's move on. Okay. Here we get into the thing I think that um, Rosa was talking about earlier is the criterion of coherence. So a principal founder of textual hermeneutics is this dude here called Friedrich Schliermacher. And his point was to distinguish genuine understanding from misunderstanding. We genuinely understand the text, for example, only if the individual of the parts are reconciled and brought together as aspects of the whole. So this is kind of an important thing. You know, it's, it is possible to go through certain parts of Marx, say, say in volume one, where he sets values equal to prices, and then say in volume three, where he gets rid of that assumption. Axiom? Assumption. Sorry, yeah, assumption. Yeah, uh, when he's kind of trying to unfold his his analysis out towards the real world, and you could have a part in the first part where it may say something that will will actually contradict something, say later on in volume three, and you could say, look, this is an example of say Marx being inconsistent, but you could only make that argument if you didn't, you know, try and understand the whole thing as a whole and and look at how Marx was changing his assumptions in different parts for his theoretical undertaking. So this idea is you want to try and make the whole body of work make sense and not just pick certain sentences to back up a certain interpretation you have and not allow our other sentences to to come in that would show that your interpretation would be wrong. It seem it's quite a, you know, it's this idea of a systemic understanding of of the text. Anybody have anything to say? I probably butchered that. It's sort of an establishment of even looking at the text scientifically. I I think this is probably the source of some of the ideas in the previous section. I do love the word exegetical. Oh, yeah. It's like a biblical word, right? Yeah. I actually found a song about exegetical interpretation to the, you know, that is it a Korean rap song? The G5. You know that one? Getting down like a G5 or something. You know that song? No, 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 I don't. I don't. You have to put uh-huh. me on some Korean hip hop. Like a cool. G6? That really. That one. Yeah, that one.
on on the internet they say I got five shades whiter that day. What I can't believe is that that only has one thousand views. Uh, section four point six Stigler's principle of scientific exegesis. So let's start this one. Uh, the great merit of Stigler's nineteen sixty five textual exegesis as a scientific problem is that it showed how to apply the criterion of coherence to the interpretation of analytical work. His principle of scientific exegesis says that such an interpretation should be rejected if it cannot deduce the author's main analytical conclusions from her definitions and premises. So what Andrew is trying to get at here is that you know that if the TSSI is able to come up with its conclusions using their setup of Mark, what they think Marx said, and the other ones aren't, that really, in, in this, if we're going to be scientific about it, the TSSI should have preference over the SSSI or the NI or the dual interpretations. There should be, there's a scientific way of looking about how we should be able to rank these guys. The PSSI has profound implications for the interpretative controversy for the theory. It implies that interpretations on which Marx's theory become internally consistent must be rejected. The evidence that Marx was inconsistent is therefore unsound. And since the evidence is unsound, Marx should be judged not guilty. Okay. And it's interesting. It goes into like who this Stigler dude is. Apparently he was like some Chicago school economists who are kind of notoriously right-wing economists who was having a debate with this guy called Haim Barkai over Ricardo's theory of the demand for corn. Interesting, they're going into a debate on uh, classical economics at this time, particularly in the 60s when neoclassical would have been dominant in somewhere like Chicago, you would have thought. But um, The 60s, really? Well, what, I would when, think so. When, when does the Chicago school start? Oh, good question, but I would be surprised right. that... The, 40s. Yeah, that's what I thought. Who was in Chicago? Was um, your man was one, wasn't he? Oh, the um, granddaddy of uh, neoliberalism. What do you call him? This is Milton Friedman. Uh, Milton Friedman. Yeah, I think he was one of the dudes. But it's interesting. It's ironic that he came up with it in a similar kind of debate over not Marx's theory, but Ricardo's theory. My concern here is not to decide who was right, but to discuss the text, the test of interpretive adequacy that Stigler proposed. He objected to Barkai's selective use of quotations in order to make his case. Why, Stigler asked, should we allow the hand-picked quotation to carry an interpretation when we reject the hand-picked fact as an empirical test of a hypothesis? In fact, the two problems are basically the same. You know, that's that's an interesting way of looking at it. It's like I, I was listening to a, a Paul Cockshot video and he was talking about, you know, his ideas of taking random samples of people to make decisions on different things in society. And it's a way to get rid of the class uh, bias of representative democracy. Sortition. Yeah. He was saying in it like that, look, you would never ask, if, if you wanted to find out what would the public were thinking about a political problem, you would never go like to the House of Commons or to the Senate, US Senate or something, and ask you know the politicians and say, oh, that's what the people are thinking, because it wouldn't be a representative sample. Right. You know, right. you would right, you would you would take a sample from all over the place. And similarly, you yeah. apply that exact same criteria to interpretation of scientific te texts or any type of text. You know, I, I quite like uh, that. 
that draws out the democratic motivations for this kind of philosophy of science. Okay, let's see what Andrew says. Yet the really brilliant aspect of Stigler's paper is his apparently novel understanding of what constitutes empirical evidence. In the case of an analytical text, he recognizes that textual evidence is not limited to passages in which an author sets out her definitions and premises. Another part of the evidence consists of her theoretical conclusions. Stigler thus proposed that a textual interpretation be judged according to whether it can hold both types of evidence together as a unified whole. Okay, the same same stuff. We're hitting the same ideas again and again and again. But what Andrew is doing in this chapter, I think, is, you know, slowly and surely making his case for exactly what are the criteria that should be done in a scientific work and how we should figure out who's right or who should we think is a better interpretation. But to me, this stuff is very obviously correct. I just think that it's yeah. kind of common scientific sense what he's I'm, saying in here i do wonder what the counter argument to these things were i don't think there is a strict counter argument if you know what i mean i don't think they make an argument saying well i think a lot of the time is the argument that we see throughout the book here is that people say well that would only be correct if you interpret it like nobody else does that's the kind of defense that people have made you know this kind of security in numbers but not scientific evidence yeah. When I, when I say philosophy of science is democratic, I don't mean like, you know, relativist pluralist, you know what I mean? I mean, uh, there's a sort of like, there's supposed to be a deliberative advantage to having a big group of people trying to figure stuff out. And the problem is, I guess, when they're academic economists instead of people. That's like how uh, John Dewey describes it. Like, you saw like the scientific method as fundamentally connected to democracy because of its like group process nature sort of like constantly reviewing like scientific discoveries in a group effort and a continuous discourse so like he's using you know ideas from statistical analysis you know ideas that you would use if you're trying to understand you know data let's uh, read this paragraph here do you want to read this one yeah, Next yeah. finally stigler's analogy to maximum likelihood is a reference to the inferential character of interpretation the concluding words of his paper were, let us recognize the fact that the interpretation of a man's position, especially if the man has a complex and subtle mind, is a problem in inference, not to be solved by the choice of quotations. Maximum likelihood estimation is a statistical technique in which one works backwards, beginning with the results of the sample data, and uses them to infer the mathematical relationship between the variables that exists in the larger population. The relationship one selects is the one that is most likely to have produced the observed data. I mean, I think that's just cool. It's a cool way to explain what good philosophy of science is. And again, the fact that we have to spell these things out is evidence of the decadence of bourgeois consciousness uh, from developed capitalism. <laughs> because this is so clearly in the spirit of just basic humanism. Anything good about the Enlightenment had this in it. Without intuitions like this, science just doesn't work. I don't know what the counter-argument is. That doesn't mean there isn't a counter-argument. I just have a really hard time intuitively dropping into it. Well, I think in this case, Barkai gave a counter-argument. Will we have a look? 
chapter 4.7, Barkai and Olander on the PSE. Let's have a look here. Barkai responded to Stigler about a year later. Takes him a long time, these guys, to respond. That he continued to affirm his own interpretation of Ricardo's theory is not surprising. What may be surprising is that Barkai nevertheless endorsed the PSE. This is the idea of the, what is it, what does the PSE stand for again? Principle of Scientific Exegesis. Like a G6. Now, what may be surprising is that Barkai nevertheless endorsed the PSE. After quoting Stigler in the opening sentence of his reply, the test of an interpretation is its consistency with the main analytical conclusions of the system of thought under consideration. Barkai remarked that this is undoubtedly a useful criteria and I, and I propose to apply it here. See, his response was, nah, you're right. That's cool. You're yeah, and they went on to argue accordingly. So Kleiman articulates a potential counter-argument here, um, that the PSC may at first seem to be a trick, that maybe this is kind of like when statisticians are juggling and fudging stats to make their argument. But Kleiman's overall point is that this isn't exactly like that because interpretation is intrinsic to the data collecting process for this kind of argument because it's a book and you have to interpret a book to read it so if you're a statistician in this sort of analogical example all that data like kind of already exists out there and and you have to decide on a criteria sure he doesn't actually say that but i am but that's not the same as interpretation playing the central role in the data collecting process and that's why he doesn't feel like this counterargument works. Okay, he's going to get into a chapter now on the response, critics' responses to these ideas. Yeah, mostly rejects the principle of scientific exegesis. Yeah, well, that's really weird. So let's start here. Critics' responses. Uh, a few critics have responded, and some of them have basically give out about the PSE. Let's read here what Mosley said. Andrew Kleiman suggests that the main criterion for choosing between different interpretations of Marx's concept of constant capital is which interpretation can better derive more of Marx's main conclusions, most importantly, the falling rate profit. I disagree. I argue that the main criterion for choosing between different interpretations of the determination of constant capital in the case of a change in the value of the means of production is what Marx himself actually wrote about this subject. Every time Marx wrote specifically about this subject, he assumed that constant capital is valued in current replacement costs in the sense indicated above. In this situation, it does not make sense to accept Andrew's interpretation of the valuation of constant capital because his interpretation makes it easier to derive a falling rate of profit. It may be easier to derive the falling rate of profit, but this interpretation contradicts everything Marx ever wrote specifically on this subject. Maybe if the text were more ambiguous, Andrew's criterion might be more appropriate. But in this case, the texts are unusually clear and consistent throughout Marx's manuscripts. Okay, so I think in this case, he's not really making, he doesn't have a problem with the principle of scientific exegesis. Yeah, it, yeah what Kleiman says about it doesn't sound like what he's saying. But we'll, we'll get to it now in a minute. He, he's saying oh, yeah. basically that like Kleiman doesn't live up to the PSA. I don't. Yeah, let's let's just read the first paragraph here first before we say that, because I know Andrew is very precise with what he says, and I think he likes the fact that Mosley will actually respond to him. So let's not try and get it wrong, just in case 
I think what he's saying here is that he's saying that Andrew is not taking the totality of what Marx has wrote and making sense of it. Okay, so to me that means that you know he's not throwing out the PSE. He's saying that you know if we actually use the PSE, right? You can't accept what you're saying, Andrew. So what we have to get to here is saying is basically is Mosley does he is he right when he says Marx is saying things against what Andrew said? You know, because yeah. Mosley is is here making a case that I think is scientifically valid. If he says Marx says this stuff, like, he's right that Andrew. Can't you know go against all of these things? But if yeah. there's an if it's a matter of interpretation about what Marx said, and not a hard fact. Yeah, every way I can conceive of this is some variant of the PSE. Okay, let's read this entire paragraph because I think this is fairly juicy. Okay, it is interesting that Mosley rejects this idea of testing his interpretation of Marx by seeing if it can be used to juice a falling rate of profit. As we have seen, neither Stigler nor Barkai had any qualms about testing their interpretation of Ricardo in precisely this manner. Part of the reason why Mosey rejects such a test is that he falsely counterposes what Marx himself actually wrote to the derivation of a falling rate of profit, as if the issue were the ease with which different interpretations can make the rate of profit fall. In fact, what is at issue is the ability of different interpretations to make two aspects of the text, premises and conclusions, cohere. The question is, which interpretation of the premises that Marx himself actually wrote down coheres with the conclusion of the law of the tendential fall of the rate of profit that Marx himself actually wrote down as well? Okay, so mm. what Andrew is saying here is that Mosley's interpretations of what Marx wrote don't lead to the conclusions. And what Andrew is saying is that my interpretations of what Marx wrote lead to the conclusions. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Kleiman kind of correctly identifies that there's a false counterposition between what Marx wrote and the derivation of falling rate of profit, considering there's some texts about the falling rate of profit. And it just seems like they are having an interpretive dispute with a broad corpus of texts. Perhaps there are different parts of it that disagree with each other. And they're prioritizing different texts in trying to make a logical coherence. I don't think Andrew says this, but that's how I'm interpreting what's going on. Like, Phew. I think what he's saying is that, uh, that Mosley and Andrew both are interpreting his premises. Okay. And Andrew's interpretation of these premises lead to the conclusions and Mosley's don't. So you're not, you know, the premises themselves have to be interpreted as well. You have to interpret, you know, the axioms or whatever, if you want to put it in like a kind of a analytical term, mathematical way, you have to get your axioms correct. And Andrew and him are disagreeing over what the axioms are. And Andrew's making the point that, well, look, my axioms give the conclusions. So surely mine are better than yours. I'm mostly saying, no, you can't choose them axioms because they're not accurate. And I think that's where this disagreement is coming up. Have I? Does mm -hmm. that sound fair? Yeah, that sounds fair. I think they each have a textual claim, and I think that's that would be a reason, right, to attack Marx's commitment to the falling rate of profit, as is done with uh, like Marx's philology.
right? Michael Heinrich is is big is big on this basically that thinking that basically Marx kind of fell out of love with that thesis. It wasn't it wasn't never really his anyway. That you know he might have put that aside by the end of his life, um, which I mean you know it's a possibility. I, I don't know. I, it's I, I don't you know it is it is something that predates Marx. It's a thesis from classical political economy. It might be true for you know reasons independently of what Marx identified. I mean that that could you be think, true. You think you would have actually wrote it down somewhere though if it was true? <laughs> I don't. I I've never heard of anybody anybody with a letter from Marx saying, "Oh yeah, that fundamental problem <laughs> stuff is bullshit." But yeah, well, I was such an idiot. But what there, what the whole complication that he never published this. No, but even in his letters, it's true. You know, no, no. I mean, I, I actually do think. I mean, I think Marx a believed in a falling later prophet, and b I think it's true. But I, I just want to like put the best argument, the, the best counter argument out there, is that this was like volumes two and three were not published; they weren't ready. There are variants of them. I believe Verso, no Verso, Haymarket just released what they're calling the economic manuscripts that, uh, which made up to, uh, volumes two and three before Ingalls edited them together. So, I mean. That's exciting. Yeah, I forgot who did it, but it it's 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 in the historical materialism series. So we, you know we can check this stuff a little bit better now. But at the same at the same point, like we're making an argument about something that a is. I think you're right, Lexi. It's, it's part of it, it's in it's in Smith. Uh, it's a, one of the many things about Smith that no one points out. While I was running errands today, I made the mistake of having a fight with a libertarian, so I got Smith on my mind. <laughs> and Ricardo, um, by the way, uh, Grossman is good on this. Yeah, and Ricardo holds to it too. I, I, I'm pretty sure pretty much everybody before before the the, the late 18th century Austrians held on to this. I mean, even some of them did. Like Schopenhauer kind of believes in the falling rates of profits. He just thinks it's for a different reason. He blames democracy. He would. Can I read this paragraph here before we get off? Mm -hmm. And we'll come back to you, Derek, and we'll come back to you about the whole chapter in one go. Do you want to do that? Okay, let me read this one here. I just want to say, only Derek could go out to do some errands and end up like in a fist fight with a, <laughs> a libertarian. <laughs> Fair play, Derek. Help! Help! He's violating the NAP! Help! <laughs> Okay, yet the more fundamental reason why Mosley rejects the PSE is that he simply refuses, without explaining why, to accept that interpretations should be judged by their ability to make text cohere as a whole. Notice that, rather than taking the whole of Marx's text into account, he excludes everything from consideration except what Marx wrote specifically about this subject. Moreover, he defines this subject in a very narrow way. Not only is the long-term fallen rate of profit not part of this subject, neither is Marx's overall theory of how constant capital value is determined. For Mosley, this subject is only what Marx wrote specifically about the determination of constant capital value in the particular case in which the value of the means of production changes. This definition of the subject enables him to dismiss as irrelevant a great many of passages in which Marx states that the constant capital component of commodities values is determined temporally. Mosley contends that these passages are irrelevant because they do not explicitly address the case in which values change. Okay, so that's where this big disagreement, I think that paragraph is quite clear as in that you know, you have to take everything into account about, say, constant capital, what he wrote about it, and not just one bit. That if your interpretation doesn't cohere with the rest of all those other ones, you know, it probably is not as good as interpretation as one that does. 
It's a thing. Can anyone really disagree with the PSC? No. I think it's reasonable that Mosley could think that Andrew's idea uh, way of interpreting is wrong. Right. I right. don't get the... I think in this idea, it's one of those cases where they're both making a strong argument about what is your criteria for interpreting this specific point. And, yeah. you know, I don't think this is a bad faith argument. I think this is a good faith argument. But I think that Andrew... We will get to the actual evidence later on, I think, in Chapter 5, I think, or Chapter 6. But I think that... The, the evidence is on Andrew's side. That's the way I put it. I think he's a bit harsh in saying that Mosley is, is rejecting yeah. the PSE. I think that's maybe a bit harsh, but I think that when I look at, say, Kleiman's interpretation versus what we're getting from Mosley, I think Andrew's makes more sense. That's the yeah. way I would put it. Yeah, I, w- I was... I was about to say that I thought the this uh, Mosley was a little bit overly polemical, not this specific, but this is a great point. Like, if your specific reading of one text causes that text to fall into conflict with everything else, then heuristic of charity would indicate that your novel reading is over favoring an idiosyncr- idiosyncratic thing with an interpretation that messes everything else up. You shouldn't do it. I mean, that's pretty simple. Yeah, and it's implicit in this argument. And I think Kleiman is fond of like downplaying this. That the falling rate of profit is a very important theory in Marxian economics. It's the crisis mechanism, even though there are other tendencies that are part of that. And for all the reasons that, you know, post-Keynesians are interested in whatever. But the central claim of Marxist economics, the long-term claim that like i think marxists have correctly identified fucking dooms capitalism from endogenous tendencies like that's an important part of the the theory well i mean otherwise it makes it purely a political project right like if you just don't be like look this is important this is a very important part of marx's work and that's why we're going to prioritize it over these some pissings that he wrote in in some mail to his you know wife's cousin in the 1860s you you know what i mean yeah i mean i don't want to get us too far off and maybe we can talk about this in the whole chapter but i've just been reading this chapter i've been thinking about all the other ways in which every like almost all the marxists that currently exist pick something about marxism they want to ignore so this doesn't surprise me as a tendency at all it's kind of hard when a lot of Marx is like just unpublished too, like like major texts that people like consider major texts like German ideology, critique of philosophy of right. Th- those are not really public works that were published during Marx's time. They're manuscripts essentially. Uh, same is true with Goethe critique. I mean, pretty much actually all the major stuff outside of the Manifesto and Capital Volume 1 wasn't published during Marx's lifetime. And a lot of it wasn't published until like the 50s. So, Okay, can we read, can we read this next chapter? Because I think it's our uh, next chapter. Next uh, paragraph. paragraph. It's good. Okay. Why does this make such passages irrelevant? Mosley is arguing, in effect, that a general statement never applies to a particular case unless it explicitly includes that particular case. This is simply not so. General statements automatically apply to all particular cases that they do not explicitly exclude. 
For instance, if I say vitamins are good for you without explicitly listing all of the particular cases to which I intended to apply in the months ending in or in the years in which Brazil wins the World Cup and when it is sunny and if you stop <laughs> liking reggae. I like that example, <laughs> liking reggae. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it is my statement in, inapplicable in these cases. Similarly, Marx wrote at the start of Capital that abstract labour is a substance of value without explicitly stipulating that this statement applies to the case in which commodities' values change. Does this make the statement irrelevant to that case? Clearly not. Mosley, however, contends that implicitly all of these passages in which Marx discusses the determination of constant capital value in temporal terms are under the assumption that the value of the means of production does not change. But he provides no evidence to substantiate this assertion, and no evidence seems to exist, thus he apparently regards it as a logical deduction, since the passages do not explicitly state that they apply to the case in which values are changing. They implicitly assume that values are not changing. This is like saying that since my statement vitamins are good for you does not explicitly stipulate that implies to months ending in R, its scope is implicitly restricted to the remaining months. I think hard to argue with these arguments, you know. All the way through this chapter, I just feel like I'm just going tick, yeah, tick, tick. You know, I can understand why Marx, why Andrew thinks that he rejects it when we get into it a bit more. But um, I do think some of the time, you know, some of this is that people are defending their position. I think there's an awful lot of that going on. I don't know. I think we've done this chapter. Right, Derek, let's give you uh, the floor here. What were your ideas or what was your feeling about chapter four? Um, aside from a few times where it dips in the in the polemics that kind of ascribe motives, I think it's pretty clear that most of the interpretations have some kind of heuristic bias that that causes problems elsewhere that are being ignored. And so if you if you do think that Marxism or, or not mean Marxism, that Marx is making a a kind of coherent argument, then this interpretation allows for everything to pretty much stay where they are, whereas a lot of these other coherencies create problems in other documents or create problems for other interpretations or create blind spots in ways that you can't justify if you, unless you think Marx was kind of dumb. <laughs> like, I don't really know how else to phrase it. I mean, that's a very general statement. Um, I do like when he talks about Mohan here because it does show that um, there are disagreements that he thinks are more, he, he might disagree with them, but he thinks that they're framed in a way that are more fair. And I'm glad he brings that up. Any other major themes? I mean, it it is interesting to contrast this with all the work on the philology. That's the, that's the only thing that comes to my mind. And I know that a lot of Kleiman's fights after this, but not before, but after this book was published was based on that was disagreements about how you interpreted the philological record. And I and I do admit that there are big problems with that. I mean, because there's yeah. just there's just so much that wasn't that Marx didn't publish. We don't know why he didn't publish it. Some things we do know why, but like we, that there's a larger project that this stuff was a part of that weren't that wasn't finished. I mean if you read Hal Draper that becomes that becomes interesting. But those aren't like I still don't think those really changed TSSI because TSSI makes what we have make sense. And a lot of the other interpretations don't give you a way to make other stuff make sense. Like th this chapter is fairly convincing to me. It's, it's to me probably more convincing than the prior chapter, even though the prior chapter does have that math thing that the dirty shaft fans did. But whatever. What did you guys think? 
we're all in kind of agreement that there's that chapter is pretty solid and that we're kind of interested to get onto some of the more juicy stuff. Signing off on that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's have a look at the chat and see what's going on. There's a lot of talk in the chat about Marks having a sore ass, which I must admit I started. Well, didn't he historically actually have a sore ass? I mean, like, yeah. yeah. The, bu- the bourgeoisie yeah. will remember my carbuncles until their dying day. If anybody wants to see what he actually had, I have it open here. It's called, uh, I, I think, uh, who is it? Erica, I think, in the chat said he was. Uh, 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 no, 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 thank you, Tom. No, no thank you, Tom. I. I I would. I, I, would I want to see the scroll. I would okay, prefer not to. All right, I'm. 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 I'm averting my eyes, people. That looks nasty. Oh my god! I'm right, not so there we go. We're subjected to a horrible parody song. We might as well just list off all the horrible bumps and bruises and weird <laughs> blisters and like I'm, I'm, fungal I'm infections not that Mark's had. Bit. Derek, Derek I, have, I have had a whole lot of people talk to me about how why that was why Marx's parliaments got so so mean towards the end of his life. It was constant pain. I mean, I've had I've actually no, no, that that does make sense. Times. So he he was a pretty cruel interlocutor. Okay, well, I think we should wrap up for today. But let's have a short one instead of going on for nine hours. I think to play us out, then we should have a little bit more of exegesis because that is. One of the best videos of all time. I'm going to put it on nice and loud and I'm going to let the video on here so everybody can see it. Derek, can I get your immediate commentary on this? Yeah, what's up with you, man? Oh, what's up with you, bro? Yeah, I noticed you're reading your Bible and everything. That's raw. Oh, amen, bro. But I just want to know, have you ever heard of hermeneutics? Hermeneutics? Yeah, hermeneutics. Nah, what's that, man? Well, that's just simply uh, the art and science of biblical interpretation. Uh, okay, okay. And it's very beneficial if you learn how to do it. You know what I'm saying? The first task of the interpreter. That's you. It's called exegesis. Extra Jesus. Nah, I said exegesis, man. <laughs> it's a Latin word. Don't be scared. Matter of fact, I laugh. When I first heard it too It's spelled E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S Guarantee you learn this process And you'll be blessed Exegesis is the careful, systematic Study the scripture for the Christian This should be your habit But to discover the original intended meaning Of the author to his audience is exegeting But to do this, man, you need some tools So let me recommend a couple of things you should use Aight? Cool First, man, you need this book It's called a commentary And it helps you to further look Into some essential things that you need to check In order for you to properly interpret the text With this skill, this should keep you from heresy and keep you from going through theological therapy The words of God will change your life If you With this skill, this will keep you from heresy And keep you from going through theological therapy The words of God will change your life If you you need some more books Yeah, I know it's getting scary But you need some definitions Get a Bible dictionary To go without these tools You can't afford it No That's why you need this book Called a concordance yeah. And every time you start to think This is too much to do I recommend you reflect on 2 Timothy 2 uh-huh. And 15 and you will see what I mean Simply because the serpent is lurking to clean Those who don't read And those who don't study To keep a lock on his treasure From a lock and a pleasure Cause God's words are lovely True. That's why we handle it as precious as pearls to let our exegetical work reflect to the world in accuracy hoping that you happy to see the very words god breathed handled accurately yeah so many now take texts out of context come on and come up with mess and more nonsense so, with this skill this 
to keep you from heresy, from heresy. And keep you from going through theological therapy yeah. The words of God will change your life If you keep that text in context With this skill, this to keep you from heresy, from heresy. And keeping you from going through theological therapy yeah. The words of God will change your life If you keep that text in context to do is called eisegesis. Icy Jesus? Nah, I said eisegesis, man. You a silly dude. It's Latin too. And that's just the act of when you adding to. Don't or the process of reading one's own meaning into the text saying that's just eisegesis. Don't do it. Don't fret. I know these words are new and phrases too, but it's cool if you go back to school. It's cool. Spelled E-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S. Guarantee you learn this process and gotta be vexed. You wanna do that. A text can never mean what it never meant before. To its original readers or authors So, if you run into a difficult passage And you know the Bible never contradicts itself Then, uh-huh. turn the pages to a parallel passage And just let the scriptures interpret itself ah. With this skill, this should keep you from heresy And keep you from going through theological therapy The words of God will change your life If you keep that text in context With this skill, this should keep you from heresy And keep you from going through theological therapy Change your life.